I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Well, our hope is each week during the Ten Commandments series to play a testimony from some member of our church. Last week, at the very end of the sermon, I gave a homework assignment, which is a terrible thing to do. <laughs> As a pastor, you don't want homework when you come to church, probably. And also, it wasn't fair because a third of our church was gone because it was icy out. Uh, but I'll tell you, I don't want you to feel left behind or, or left out, so I'll give you the assignment now. Last week, we began our sermon series on the Ten Commandments, which will continue this morning on the Second Commandment. And for homework, I asked you to think about the difference between the first commandment and the second commandment, first and second, and, and what is that difference? And some of you might know the Roman Catholic tradition and the Lutheran tradition grouped together the first and second commandment as one commandment, but whether you do that or not, the issue is still the same. All the words are still there, whether it's two commandments or 1A and 1B, And the question is, what's the difference between the two things that are prohibited? And probably the more significant question is, why does it matter? And maybe even more significant is, why is it for our good? Why is it for your good? So we'll talk about these things for the next 30 minutes or so. Let's begin in prayer. Heavenly Father, in this moment, I think of the words of Jesus at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, where he told the followers to go throughout all the world and to teach people to observe everything that you have commanded. May what we do here at church every Sunday and throughout the week, but even particularly now in this moment, be an extension and an obedient following of that command to teach everyone everywhere all of your commands, even specifically the second commandment. Help us to that end. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So last year I, I had a chance, it was this one day, to see two people in person uh, that I'd met before, but basically the way I knew both of them was mostly through very impersonal means. Through books, emails, with one of them text messages. And I don't want to make too much of it because I could have caught one of them on a bad day. <laughs> um, I don't want to make too much of it. It could have been a bad day. But my impression after meeting both of these people, both of these authors... Uh, was that one of them wanted to be known and the other one did not. One of them was happy to talk, happy to be known. The other one was, was not ready for that, at least in that moment. Now, here's the question. Which one do you imagine is more like God? Which one do you suppose, in that little anecdote, is more like God? Does God, do you suppose that God wants to be known? Now, the way I'm asking that is something of a trick question. You don't know that yet. But I intentionally word it as, 
which do you imagine and which do you suppose? Because later we're going to talk about the phrase, I like to imagine God as. But for now, I'll tell you, we don't have to guess. We don't have to suppose or imagine what God is like in this regard. He wants to be known. He is a speaking God. Throughout the book of Exodus, which is the place we first encounter the Ten Commandments, God has said something over and over. In fact, the phrase is so central to the book, so often repeated, so weighty and prominent, that theologians, as I've said several times before throughout this sermon series, have given this particular phrase a name. They call it the recognition formula. The recognition formula goes like this, then he will know, or then they will know, or then you will know. Know what? Know what will we know Then you will know, God says over and over again, that I am God. Everything God does in the book of Exodus is so that you would recognize that God is God. All the events in Exodus, from the baby floated down the Nile River in a basket, to a fiery bush that doesn't burn, to Moses and the plagues and the angel of death passing over homes with lamb's blood painted on the doorposts, to the parting of the Red Sea, to the closing of the Red Sea, to the putting of manna on the ground, to the pillar of fire, to the building of all that will be built later in the book of Exodus. All of it is so that people would know that God is God. The recognition formula is used over 20 times in the book of Exodus. Then you will know, he says. And what is true of all of God's actions in Exodus are also true of the law. The Ten Commandments express God's desire for you to know him. The preface to the Ten Commandments begin this way, Exodus 20, verse 1. It's on page 57 of those pew Bibles. And God spoke all these words. He spoke. He opened up his mouth and he spoke. God speaks his law to you so that you can know him Last week, we talked about the law of God as a pocket knife of sorts. Um, A pocket knife is a tool that does many things at once, right? You take out a pocket knife, it has a screwdriver, a can opener, and of course, a knife, and it does all those things, or not necessarily at once, but could do all of those things. The law of God is like that. Each week, we're going to try and hold up a different piece of the law of God, say, okay, and it does this, and it does this, and it does this. And the thing I want to highlight most especially this week is that the Ten Commandments are a way to know God. And in knowing Him, the real Him, the real God, the God who is who He says He is, is better than knowing an imaginary God. Left to your own, you would fashion God in your own image. Left to yourself, you'd make God into your likeness, projecting all of you onto all of him. And when you make God in your own image, your God becomes as weak and wounded and wayward as you are. So I want to come back to our homework What's the difference between the first and second commandment? But to do that, let's, let's read it all at once. So again, page 57, if you have a pew Bible, just you can flip there to it. Uh, I'm going to read from it now. So page 57, 
Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, we find the preface, the first commandment, and the second commandment, and they go like this. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Second commandment. This big paragraph. You shall not make for yourself the carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, it's possible to read the second commandment as prohibiting you from making all art because it literally says, you shall not make for yourself the carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or it is in the water the other under the earth, right? So sky, land, sea. Don't make anything that looks like any of thing that's up there, right here, or down there. So that prohibits all art, right? But there's something important to notice. Author Jen Wilkin points out that this commandment, quote, portrays idol worship as progressive. Do not make, it says, do not bow down, do not serve, close quote. That's the key. You make it for yourself, as the passage says, and then you move from making to bowing down and then to serving. The problem is not so much in the first, excuse me, the second commandment of making art. The problem is making art for worship. In fact, throughout Exodus, what we'll see later is that God commands people to make artistic, beautiful stuff. All right, we're going to spend a whole sermon later in the spring on Exodus 35, where God's very own spirit gives Two individuals in particular, the ability to, quote, devise artistic designs to work in gold and silver and bronze and cutting stones for setting and in carving wood for work in every skilled craft, close quote, Exodus 35. In other words, God's very spirit helps people make beautiful art. So the second commandment is not merely about art. And I'm so thankful for the beauty of this building in particular. I mean, if you've got the windows... I'm thankful for the renovation work we did when we moved in, the contractors that were a part of that. And I'm thankful for one woman in particular who decorates this building seasonally. It's a lot of work. I'm thankful for the woman who comes in every Monday and every Friday and spends hours and sometimes other days as well cleaning this building and keeping it looking as beautiful as it really is. I'm thankful for Glenn a member of our church who's going to produce all of these videos. They're artistically done so well. I'm thankful that when you walk out that door and leave out the front door, if that's the way you come in and go out, there's a painting there, watercolor painting of our church building that's beautifully done by a man who's been in our church for several years, but he spent years and years, decades even, honing his craft at watercolor. We have an award-winning Christian novelist in our church who writes beautiful artistic prose and tells stories that matter. 
And there are others too. I'm just, I'm just going to stop there. But we could keep going. And would that there would be more and more of these in our church and in this world. So it's not about art per se, but worship, specifically false worship. You shall, you make it for yourself, the passage says, and then you move from making to bowing down and then serving. So let's come back to the homework question. The first commandment says, have no other gods, so have no other gods. And the second commandment says, don't make an idol. So what's the difference between these two commandments? Here's the answer. The first commandment prohibits having any gods, like wherever they would be, whatever they would be, besides the real God. The second commandment prohibits taking the real God and changing him. I'll say it again. The first commandment prohibits having all sorts of other gods besides the real God. And the second commandment prohibits you from taking the real God and changing him. And representing God in a physical image changes him because the real God can't be reduced down to one image. Let me share it with you in the words of an author named J.I. Packer from his classic 1973 book, Knowing God. 200 years from now, people will still be reading Knowing God if the Lord doesn't come back. He gives a whole chapter to the second commandment. And he writes, the second commandment thus deals not with the object of our worship, but the manner of it. What, What it tells us is that statutes and pictures of the one whom we worship are not to be used as an aid to worship in him. So, we've talked about art generally, but, but should we never have images of anything, especially Jesus? One of our pastors has a painting of Jesus in his office by the Italian painter Caravaggio. Is he wrong to do that? Well, I won't make eye contact with that pastor right now, but let's talk about it. Should he do that? It's not my office. (laughs) But I I will tell you, I'd be happy to put it in my office too. But is is it wrong? Some of you like the series The Chosen. Okay. Oh, is he going to go there? All right, he's going to go there. I don't want to take that away from you. I don't want to take away uh, a joy, a delight, an education that comes from that painting or the book, The Chosen, or the TV television series, The Chosen. Kind of a reef, kind of walking through of the life of Christ as we have it in the Gospels. And, and to be honest, Campus Crusade and other Christian ministries have been showing Jesus-type films for decades, and they've helped millions of people throughout the world come to know Jesus. So it's not a new thing. The paintings from the 1500s. But what I want to say to you in light of the second commandment is this. A responsible Christian, in light of the second commandment, should be able to find benefit in the series, and for that matter, the children's series, or excuse me, the the series of the chosen, and for that matter, paintings, and children's books that have images of Jesus. But at the same time, the responsible Christian should be able to realize that those images and videos are not the real Jesus. 
And when you think of Jesus, the images you have should not overwhelmingly cause you to think about one certain actor or one certain book or one certain painting. If they do, then you might have crossed the line. That's where the line is, I think. Sometimes images of Jesus imagine him as having blue eyes and blonde hair. And perhaps that helps some people realize that when Jesus came down to be one of us, he became one of us. I don't have brown eyes or blue eyes. I don't have blonde hair. And I think we can be sure since Jesus came as a Middle Eastern man, he doesn't have blonde hair and blue eyes. And his skin is certainly darker than mine. Therefore, when you compress the real Jesus down into one image, it might reveal part of who he is, but it also at the same time conceals more than it reveals. And that's, as J.I. Packer walks through the second commandment, that's one of the main concerns he has and sees behind the second commandment. Now, when pastors and authors often talk about the second commandment, they almost invariably, they almost always leap over to another story in the book of Exodus later in the book, but actually, incidentally, occurring simultaneously with the giving of the Ten Commandments. It comes from Exodus 32. While Moses is on Mount Sinai, away from the people, with God, way up there, the people wonder what's become of him. Is God really as distant as this Moses seems to be? And so Aaron, Moses' brother, their leader at the time, made a golden calf and said, it was the God who brought you out of Egypt. Here's the God who brought you out of Egypt. Exodus 32, 4. And the reason pastors often leap over to that passage is for this reason. Aaron was not trying to have other gods before the real God. Instead, while Moses was away talking to God and this God who's so distant, he was trying to bring the real God near. But Aaron did so by changing the real God into one image for worship, the image of a golden calf. Now, it's true, it's true that the calf may have communicated something of God's strength, his power. But again, it concealed far more than it revealed. Note what author Jen Wilkin has to say about this. She writes, think about the enormity of the lie the golden calf tells. It is small, but God is immense. It is inanimate, but God is spirit. It is location-bound, but God is everywhere fully present. It is created, but God is uncreated. It is new, but God is eternal. It is not powerful, but God is all-powerful. It is destructible, but God is indestructible. It is of minor value, but God is of infinite value. It is, mark this, blind and deaf and mute, but God sees, hears, and speaks. And with that thought about speaking, we widen out. We widen out. You can make images, or excuse me to say it this way, the images you make of God are not merely physical. The images you make of God can be and often are mental. This is why I 
had those lines at the beginning of the sermon of trying to that trick question of how do you imagine God to be? Do you suppose that God wants to be known? Listen to what J.A. Packer wrote almost 50 years ago. Imaging God in our heads can be just as real as a breach of the second commandment as imaging him by the work of our hands. I'll say that again. Imaging God in our heads can be just as real a breach of the second commandment as imaging him with the work of our hands. How often do we hear this sort of thing? I like to think of God as the great architect or the mathematician or the artist. I don't like to think of God as a judge. I like to think of him simply as father. We know from experience, he writes, how often remarks of this kind serve as the prelude. So the thing that comes before the thing. How often remarks of this kind I like to think of God as serve as the prelude to a denial of something that the Bible tells us about God. It needs to be said with the greatest possible emphasis, he writes, that those who hold themselves free to think of God as they like are breaking the second commandment. At best, they can only think of God in the form or image of a man, as an ideal man perhaps, or a superman, but God is not any sort of man. We are made in his image. We must not think of him existing in ours. Close quote. And Packer goes on to show that this kind of mental remaking of God will, in the end, make you ignorant of the real God. That is, wrong mental images hinder you from knowing the real God. Packer concludes, quote, We cannot know God unless he speaks and tells us about himself. But in fact, he has spoken. Therefore, I don't usually use the word therefore in a sermon, but therefore. It's not the secular world who is in danger of breaking the second commandment, primarily. But those under the umbrella of what I'll call Christendom. Christendom kind of sounds like kingdom. The umbrella of Christendom, as I'm going to describe it to you, is everybody everywhere who says anything about Jesus. Christendom is the broadest umbrella that includes everybody everywhere who's saying something about Jesus. So all true Christians fit in Christendom. But so do Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and extreme versions of what I'll call liberal or progressive Christianity. Christendom is everywhere, everybody who's claiming something about Jesus. And it's Christendom who has the greatest danger of breaking the second commandment. What I mean is this. God has revealed himself. He wants to be known. He wants you to know him. And we are not free to change him from how he has made himself known. If you tell me your name is Steve and your favorite color is red, I'm not free to go, here's my friend Joe, his favorite color is blue. Let me take one religious group within Christendom to illustrate more. Just going to take one. Let's talk about the more extreme versions of liberal or progressive Christianity. And I struggle to know the right words. Some people would use those words as a, as a positive thing. Someone would use them negative. I'm just 
I'll do the best I can here. The more extreme versions of liberal or progressive Christianity shouldn't be called Christianity. It doesn't teach a bodily resurrection of Jesus. More extreme versions of liberal Christianity teaches that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And as well, it doesn't teach a physical bodily return of Christ at the end of time. Instead, the return of Christ as it would be fashioned is a return of Christ in our hearts of believers who believe in some God, Jesus maybe. And when believers believe in him and do good works, then he returns. More extreme versions of progressive Christianity believe that salvation is found in other religions. It teaches that the Bible can't be fully trusted to mean what it says, but rather you must be the one who decides what's true and what's not. And if what you believe to be true shows up some places in the Bible, then you can believe those parts and not the others. And I haven't even gotten to the sexual ethics of progressive Christianity yet, which are ethics refashioned not the way God spoke them, but the way that people want them to be. Go back with me a few hundred years, all right? We'll pull off this for a second, and we're going to come back. Go back with me a few hundred years. Many years ago, a great many religious people in America broke the second commandment by saying that the real God endorsed the kind of slavery that America participated in. It was a great evil. But that great evil happened. The second commandment was broken, taking the real God and saying, something that was true of him that's not true of him, that great evil happened because, in large part, there were tremendous economic and cultural pressures to do so. It was culturally and economically advantageous to say that God endorsed American slavery, which, of course, he does not. That is one way in the past religious people broke the second commandment. Now, come back to today. There are tremendous economic and social and cultural peer pressures for you to say that God endorses same-sex marriage as equivalent to heterosexual marriage. But to do so is also, I would say, a violation of the second commandment, a taking of what the real God has said and changing him. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and we should not change him for our good and his glory. Now, I want to be careful. I want to be careful. Likely, many of you have sincere questions. What what does the Bible really say about these things? The resurrection of Jesus, the return of Christ, sexual ethics. I'm just here, and I'm trying to figure it out, and you're you're asserting things that you haven't even argued for. I, I know. And I don't know how to do everything at once. And I don't have time to do everything at once, so I'm just, I'm just going to suggest we have a book in our bookstore by a guy named Kevin DeYoung. Uh, it's the most helpful book I know specifically on the Bible's view of sexual ethics. It was in our bookstore, which is a wonderful, beautiful shelf, <laughs> bookshelf, store. Um, there was probably only one, but Amazon has more, I'm sure. This leads to something broader I want to say, though. Uh, read an article recently about how about institutions such as schools and churches and the author tried to describe this cultural shift we all experience we're all part of and influenced by frankly we are all 
influenced by it, and this cultural shift taking place in the recent decades that, that makes it so easy for us to break unthinkingly the second commandment, as though it were no big deal. This shift, as the author put it, is this desire, rather than to be shaped by an institution, to have institutions affirm us. So in the past, someone might have joined the military to submit to the fire and forge that is the military, to be shaped by the military intentionally. Someone might have joined a particular university to to, to come under the fire and forge of that university's education. But as this author described it, the shift is now that people want to join institutions so that those institutions then affirm them. People do not choose a church and a pastor to preach them truth, but they choose a church that will affirm the beliefs they already have. Which leads me to suggest that if your version of God affirms everything that culture affirms, affirms, I want to suggest to you that you should think more about whether you have the real God. I would say the same thing of politics. If your God can be shrunk down to one clean, neat system of politics, I would question whether you have the real God. Instead of you and I picking and choosing which commandments you think are valid, the commandments are supposed to, as another author, Jen Wilkin, again, quoting her author, her book is so helpful in this, she, she speaks of the commandments themselves as to be engraving tools for us. That God is using the commandments to chip away at us and fashion us in him image, not the other way around. Yesterday, we had our church book club in the cafe, 10.30.12. There's an advertisement for it. Going to do the other one, I think March 19th, maybe. Book to be determined. But we studied Fahrenheit 451. It's a science fiction novel written in the 50s. Um, looking to the future, a time actually even beyond 2022. Incidentally, in a weird way, it mentions 2022. Um, But um, it's a book about a time when books are almost burned to extinction. And the main character happens to stumble upon a Bible, and he shows it to a former English professor. And that professor had been, in his own words, cowardly and hiding um, so that he could sort of get through the times and Forty years go by, and he gets this Bible handed to him, and he thumbs through it. He says he's not a religious man, but as he's thumbing through the Bible, this is his comment about the way that in his day they had changed Jesus. He says, quote, I often wonder if God recognizes his own son the way we've dressed him up, or has it dressed him down? He's a regular peppermint stick now, all sugar crystal." The idea of calling Jesus a peppermint stick I thought was kind of funny. Um, But I thought it was also a way to say that Jesus has been made so syrupy sweet, he no longer is imagined to have a backbone or an ethical center. Jesus is just therapeutic medicine to make you feel good when you need to pick me up rather than the second person of the Trinity. Who, as John said as we went through Advent, was the word was with God, was God, and through whom, quote, all things were made, and without him was not anything made that was made. And I was going to quote Hebrews 1, and I was, we show, we, we, you read it at the call to worship. I'm just going to do it again. 
The author of Hebrews, as he begins his letter, listen to the exalted view of Jesus that he gives. Long ago, he writes, at many times, in many ways, our God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to you by his son. Well, who's his son? Whom God appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. The author of Hebrews goes on to praise Jesus as better than angels, better than the Old Testament high priests, better than sacrifices, even better than Moses. And if Jesus is all of that, then when you make an image for worship of Jesus, whether it's a physical image or a mental one that is less than who he really is and breaks the second commandment, that's a really big deal. Look again with me at the wording of the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself the carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. I'll just point out quickly that it's those who hate me. The the fathers, the children, the grandchildren, and the great-grandchildren all hate. So they're culpable in this. But, God says, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. God takes who he is seriously. And I don't want to be crass and overly provocative. Please hear me. I don't, I'm not trying to be crass and overly provocative. But I want you to feel the weight of this. There's a type of pornography that puts the face of celebrities on other people doing things that those celebrities have not done. It is a heinous evil. And if that's evil at a human level, to change one human into another, how much so, so with the living God? He's jealous for you to know him. I'll close just by talking about that word jealous. Probably catches some of you off guard. Strange. Like, isn't there a commandment about jealousy? (laughs) Thou shalt not covet. Which is basically, thou shalt not be jealous. What, what, What is this? I think part of how we see the gospel and the good news in this commandments is through this word jealousy. See, when you have an imaginary friend, that friend does everything you want. When you want to go to the park, your imaginary friend goes to play at the park. When you want to watch a movie, your imaginary friend watches that movie. Imaginary friends always give you their lunch money when you need it because they do whatever you want them to do. But an imaginary friend or an imaginary pastor or an imaginary God is not so helpful when you drift off into things you shouldn't. When you're at the end of your rope and you have no strength. Imaginary friend isn't so helpful when you go to the park to meet up with a woman who's not your wife. An imaginary friend isn't so helpful when you watch movies you shouldn't be watching. Real friends, real pastors, and most especially the real God can't be shaped to affirm everything we do. And that's a good thing. Because we are often weak and wounded and wayward. And the real God is none of these. The real God is jealous for a relationship with you. In the video we watched with Mariana, she said at one point, this, is dif- this was different. I started to feel curious about who God was more than who 
I would say he was and who people said he was. I wanted to see who God said he was, close quote. The good news of the gospel is that these same desires are also God's desires. He wants you to know him too. Indeed, Jesus is jealous for you. The way a faithful husband is jealous to know his bride. Some language about that in the Bible. And before we pray and have communion together, I'll just mention that next week, Pastor Ben is going to be preaching through the third commandment. I would tell you that no commandment of probably a 10 has, we generally have a more superficial understanding of taking the Lord's name in vain. So if you want to, there's your homework. Think about that for a bit. Because if this commandment was pointed out there at those in Christendom, the spotlight comes home next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are who you say you are. And that's better for us than we could ever imagine. Show yourself strong to us through your church, through your word, through your truth, through the person and work of Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.